it has to do more than just function because if you just pursue functionality, the things don't function very well. You also need, I don't know, delight or beauty or something on top of that that ultimately will make it work much better. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today can best be described as a graphic design daredevil, or maybe a prophet. Through his creations, exhibitions, books, artwork, products, topography, murals, installations, album covers, and even films, he doesn't only create things for his clients to help them communicate, but he uses his craft to espouse his own ideas about life, work, and the world around us. Stefan Sagmeister. Sagmeister got a start in the industry at an early age, creating a magazine for a left-wing organization in his native Austria, and later studied graphic design in Vienna before studying at a scholarship at Pratt University in New York. After working for others, he started his own agency in the early 90s. He's created album covers for the likes of David Byrne, Lou Reed, and the Rolling Stones, identities for institutions like the Jewish Museum in New York, and various campaigns, posters, and lots of books. He's probably best known for his innovations in typography, specifically creating his messages in the real world and then photographing them in various ways. He might draw letters on the petals of flowers or even etch words into his own skin. He's also known for a deliberately non-commercial, savvy way of working. He divides his career into these seven-year spans, often changing firm partners each time and taking a year off in between to work on personal projects that never see the light of day. And if you're a fan of the logo of this very podcast, you can thank one of his early partners, Matthias Ernstberger, who was also my cohort during my days editing Surface Magazine. Hi, Matthias. These phases of Sagmeister's career can also have themes. His latest is Now is Better, a project that has culminated in an exhibition and various works, including one of his groundbreaking books. One of his favorite partners in publishing is Fiden, which just celebrated its 100th anniversary. And we'll speak with both Stefan and the brand's group publisher, Deb Aronson, later in the program. I'll admit, after watching his 2016 documentary, simply titled The Happy Film, where he's followed around by cameras just trying to be happy, I was a bit nervous. Spoiler alert, in The Happy Film, he doesn't quite come across as a happy guy. Luckily for me, he turned out to be happier than most. And I find his insights into the real world and how it mixes with creativity to be totally endearing and riveting. And it's all mixed with a bit of Austrian matter-of-factness. I caught up with Stefan from his studio just a few blocks away from me in New York to talk about getting along with his teachers in school, the fallout from his happy film, where the personal and professional parts of his life collided, and why he thinks life now is better than ever before. You know, part of the mythology of your uh, of your early life was that you worked at a magazine when you were something like 15 years old. Um, and it was like perhaps like a, a left leaning magazine. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got working on that, you know, and at, at what we would consider not a legal age to be working? <laughs> well, you know, this was a small magazine. Uh, it was a magazine for Vorarlberg, which is the county or the state uh, that I'm from, very western 
very the western part of Austria, close to Switzerland and Germany. And this was a youth magazine left wing, as you mentioned. Uh, and I had changed schools. I was very unhappy in an engineering type of high school and changed back into a regular high school where I was much happier with. And I was aware of that magazine and I saw not one, I saw a boy, not from my class, but from another class who had a sticker of said magazine called Alpon uh, uh, on his bicycle. And I talked to him and he said, well, that the magazine actually meets in the basement of his house. Oh. And I should just come by on Monday, uh, on Monday evenings, which I did. And I wrote a couple of articles then for that magazine, not very good ones. Yeah. It was, I was very aware that the other writers there were significantly, well, they were also a bit older, but they were significantly better. And when the person who was sort of responsible, it was always a joint effort, but who was sort of responsible for doing the layout, moved to Vienna because to study. That, I don't know, that job became open and I tried my luck at it and, I, and it turned out that I really enjoyed it. I was not bad at it. And probably most significantly, the magazine was sort of... Hmm, involved in all kinds of cultural avenues like you know organized a music festival did a demonstration here or contributed to some protests all these sort of things that ultimately needed graphics and considering i already did the layout then that was also up to me if i look back on it most of that was very amateurish you know we also had no money so you know, I found that we got the letter set sheets, which were popular at the time, to make headlines. You rubbed them off a uh, a vellum, a piece of vellum. Uh, we got them donated uh, by uh, design studios yeah. close by, and all the E's were always missing because that's <laughs> the most popular letter in uh, in German. So we, uh, I found out quickly that completely drawing the entire headline by hand was actually more efficient than recreating painstakingly the E that was missing. And my guess is that that probably had some sort of influence on my designs much, much later that did feature a lot of hand-drawn elements. Yeah, to be resourceful in a sense. I think that that's part of it. But I think what was incredibly valuable at the time was that you did something, you designed something, and it had a visible effect. You know, you put a poster up for a concert, and that was the only thing how people would know about the concert, and 300 people would show up. And so this deep understanding of function in me, you know, like be never really in the studio when sometimes students that I talk to are incredibly surprised by this. Like all of the things we've ever done in the studio had functionality very, very much in mind, meaning that it was throughout the process from the beginning until the very end of the execution, 
how this would ultimately work was foremost on our mind. But of course, that was that ultimately is not enough. Like it has to do more than just function because functionality, if you just pursue functionality, the things don't function very well. Like you also need, I don't know, delight or beauty or something on top of that that ultimately will make it work much better. And, you know, in your book, which we'll get to soon, you, you tell a story about your father who grew up in rural Austria and some of the local legends there. And I was wondering, you know, what your parents were like and how they kind of uh, what they did for a living or how they kind of influenced you uh, as a sort of a, a young magazine editor, even. Well, I grew up above a store. My parents had a clothing store. Oh, what, what kind of clothing? At the time when my parents had it, it was very much usable quality clothing. So it was the big store in the small town. You know, Bregenz, where I come from, is a pretty small town with 25,000 people. It was the biggest store in that town. So my parents were known in town. Uh, and it was the place where you bought your work clothes if you wanted quality work clothes, but also your suit for Sunday church. Ah, okay. It was not fashionable, really. It was about it was about quality. And it was about the kind of clothes that you actually needed. Like I think a lot of my parents' clients bought a new suit when the old one wasn't repairable anymore. That sort of thing. And uh, they took over the store from their parents and the parents, those parents took over the store from their parents. I think it's, I think it's 1780 when the store was started. Okay. And where at, in the beginning, it was sort of a mixture between antiques, but very low, le low, low, low level antiques. Uh, so you could also say it was kind of crap plus antiques. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I, and kind of probably like a low, a general store, maybe in a sense, or yeah, uh, and you know the area that for Arlberg, which is now extremely wealthy, uh, maybe one of the wealthiest areas in Austria, and definitely everybody is doing well in the. 18th and 19th century was incredibly poor. So, of course, a antique store had extremely low-level kind of quality works, <laughs> sure. that sort of thing. And even, you know, I've uh, we've actually at one point designed the identity for the local museum. And when I talked to the director, he said the collection is unbelievably poor <laughs> because the money was, you know, in nearby St. Gallen in Switzerland or in Munich or uh, in Bavaria. But but for Alberg was just poor. I mean, to the point where even in the beginning of the 20th century, kids had to be sent to southern Germany to be fed because the families in Alberg were not really able wow. to feed their own kids. Oh, gosh. And so do you think, do, were your parents kind of conservative, kind of growing up in that sort of mentality, in a sense? I mean, they were, would they would definitely be voting for the conservative uh, 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 party, but then the entire county would, you know, like basically this was yeah, this is a conservative part of uh, Austria, not so much anymore, where it's quite forward-looking and quite 
modern, I mean, in, in Bregenz there is a, the, a museum of contemporary art that is as good as anything you would find in New York City. There's an extremely high-level uh, program built by a fantastic architect. I mean, if this building would, with its program would stand in Chelsea, it would be a complete hit. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine editor knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands, with in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Pierre Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Colin King. Stefan Sagmeister's latest work involves adding geometric shapes in strong colors to antique oil paintings like portraits, landscapes, and still lives. A room can also be enhanced and rejuvenated in a similar way. Once you have your tastefully balanced and coordinated room, add a bit of solid color in a piece of lighting or furniture to create a focal point for the eye. It's an old designer trick, and lumens can help. Once you choose your style or product type, search by color. You'll find gems like pendant lights from Louis Poulsen in hues of green, a Vitra sofa in deep blues, or even a pink rug from Moy. To kick things up a notch in the world of design, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S.com. And, you know, as someone who I kind of feel like your work routinely tries to break conventions in some way and speak a bit about design culture and design criticism, uh, or at least confront it in a way. I'm wondering, you know, as a student, you, you, you went to school for design, you came to New York on a scholarship, you went to Pratt. Um, did you get along with your teachers, your design teachers or your art teachers in, in, in school? Or were you kind of chafing against maybe some of their Orthodoxy. I was. I mean, specifically in Austria, like I went to the school ultimately that I wanted to, which is the Hochschule für Angewandte Kunst, mean University for Applied Art. And the graphics program at the time was run by a professor who sort of had lost his team by the time we had him. He was all he was elderly and I felt by that point had kind of given up like he wasn't really informed on what's going on digitally or uh, and it was a very conservative program I meaning I am we still learned to paint set typography with brushes so we literally would paint you know times new roman but not just the headline but we like you know meaning not a lot of text but like you know entire sentences with like you know design like painting them in a brush if we needed them in a color because that was the only way that that sort of faculty would know how to do that Mm. um and at pratt it was much more of a mixture where I think I would 
rebel against some professors, but was very much in favor of others. And, you know, at the show that we just uh, had in Tribeca, three of my favorite professors actually showed up at the opening from Pratt. And so, and we loosely had stayed in touch and there was definitely this, I mean, it was also a much more professionally run program, I would think. So, uh, you know, in in Austria, as in Germany, the universities in the arts or in design run a masterclass program where you would be the entire four years with one professor, which can be fantastic if the professor is great and not so good if right. that is not the case. Right. Um, and, you know, after after school, you know, you, you, sh you had a few different jobs in different places before striking out on your own. And I was wondering if you recall you know, when you went out on your own, what your first commission was that kind of, you know, A, was just sort of your first big break as a, as a, as an independent studio, but also one that might have solidified in a way like what would become sort of your process? Or were you, did you have it at that time? Or did it take a little bit for things to kind of settle? Well, uh, I, you know, after school, I worked in Hong Kong quite commercially for two years. Then for my favorite studio in the world, Emmon Company with Tibor Kalman, for quite a short while, for six months before I opened my uh, own studio. And the idea really was to keep the studio small and to do design for music, because that's really ultimately what my old dream was as a 15 year old when I worked for the little magazine uh, to do album covers and which at that point you know were of course just transformed into CD covers so I just came in at that time and that's what I was would be looking for and I think my first CD cover commission was by a by a New York underground band where the singer was Austrian and whom I knew and this was a band called HB Zinker they played CBGB's on a Saturday night so meaning they were not huge but well known within the New York if you if you listened to rock in the New York world you probably were aware of them and they were at an independent label and we designed the cover which Ultimately, that cover was nominated for a Grammy, which really put us on the map because I had, I had had meetings with all of the major labels and some of the independents, and they liked the portfolio. They liked what I had done previously and said they're going to give us jobs, but those jobs really never came until the Grammy nomination, I guess where they saw that, okay, he can't just do it for the portfolio, but he actually can see through a project all the way and into print, which I now would think is very much fair enough because there is a huge difference between doing something for your portfolio or actually getting something done that's still of quality that actually lives out in the world because there is a lot of shepherding and protecting and, you know, being, I don't know, persuasive in meetings to protect it and all sorts of things like that. That uh, it really, I do believe that that getting things done 
is probably one of the four most qualities that a designer needs. And what, what, what do you mean? Like the, the ability to kind of like, we would make shit happen essentially like to really yeah. like, you know, yes. conceive of something that no one's ever conceived before, convince other people to do it and just do it. And be able to make like realize that within a budget and a timeline and being able to see what that situation desires and shepherd it through a process specifically let's say if we stick within the music industry which is often very complex because you have a a band a management of the band and a record label that by design often have quite different goals and to be able to protect the peace uh, against those forces is I think its own little needs its own little craft. You know, what do you, another guest of mine that in, from the design field, Paula Cher also got her, a lot of her start from doing album covers. Um, did you enjoy it? Like, you know, at the end, of, I mean, you did many of them, but, and, and they were extremely successful and, and won awards and all sorts of things. Was it something where you, uh, you know, it's probably hard to make a studio just out of that, I'm sure, because it's probably just budget wise. But is that something that you did you look back on those days fondly of doing those projects? And, and Yes. Oh, totally. I mean, it, as I said, it it had an, in, an incredible amount of difficulties in shepherding them, them through through the different forces. But in general, I believe that visualizing music to be one of the single most interesting tasks you can ask for as a designer because you're ultimately working with something extremely emotional that by it that itself is not visual so i always thought that that creating album covers is so much more of an interesting job than let's say film posters so both of them are uh popular art forms, but the film poster, you ultimately have to distill something that's extremely visual into a single image, which is just inherently much less interesting than to come up with an image of something that is inherently non-visual, but very emotional. And so I also believe, I'm convinced that if you look at the history of album covers, the quality is infinitely higher than if you look at the, that's the, the history of film posters. Because ultimately, they are distillations of, uh, of a long story into an image. Often you have to feature uh, the main actress or actor, uh, which sometimes is the case in in albums too, but even that, to create, to come up with a with a portrait of something that is non-visual and emotional is much more interesting uh, than uh, than in than distilling the film. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Material Bank. As you know, I've been a design journalist for twenty years, and in that time, I visited dozens of designer studios. Sure, it's fun seeing where architects and such work and sketch. But my favorite part of the tour is always the material library. And as any designer knows, finding, sourcing, and keeping track of samples is a major undertaking. And a major headache. But there's no discipline of design without a keen knowledge and access to great and innovative materials. 
that's where Material Bank comes in. As the fastest and most sustainable platform to search, sample, and specify materials, it's become an indispensable tool. On Material Bank, you can search more than 500 brands in seconds, connect with reps, get vital specs in an instant, and most importantly, get those samples in hand overnight. It's the most sustainable way of pulling samples from around the world, and everything comes in one box. And it's more than just a place to browse, it's a connective network that's powering the design world to create amazing things. And while our guest today, Stefan Sagmeister, may be a graphic designer at heart, he brings his mischievous and creative eye to products as well. Reflective teacups, limited edition watches, even ready-to-wear. And you better believe that someone on his level does his homework before creating just about anything. It's free for designers to join, so go online and become a member today at materialbank.com. And, uh, you know, to fast forward a little bit, because uh, it relates to some of your new work, um, it is uh, what I mentioned to you right before we joined the call was the 2016 film called The Happy Film, where you, it's a documentary uh, where you sort of search for happiness and fulfillment, both personally, professionally, love life, everything. And I've always wanted to see a follow-up and see kind of what happened. And so, um, I mean, that film was very, I mean, you very much bared your soul in all sorts of angles in a way that is quite brave. And of course, I, I would compare it to other works where you'd be naked and you've drawn yourself or whatever. Like, what was the aftermath of that film? for you i think the biggest joy in the aftermath was that the film was done <laughs> and i didn't have to continue working on it it was i think that out of all of the projects that i've ever attempted in my life i think the film was the one where i had the longest periods of true unhappiness anxiety and dread oh gosh and Wait, did the film make you feel that way or was it uh, just happened to be the film was a reaction to the unhappiness? No, I think it was the, 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 the process of making the film that made me that way. The, the, the things that we tried out in the film and as you know, it's like, you know, I try out uh, cognitive therapy, meditation and drugs as uh efficient methods to make me happier. I think ultimately all of those three methods worked, but I, I had completely underestimated the difficulty of making a film. I've, I had underestimated how much we all, including myself, are spoiled by so many quality films that we've all seen and how difficult it really is just to make a film that's watchable that you don't turn off after 10 minutes. Uh, so yeah, I think that that I had gone into this project thinking I had done numerous books about big subjects. Let's do a film simply for it to be a challenge. I could have also elected to a book about my happiness, would have been much, much, much easier. But it really was the making of the film that was difficult. And however, I would say that this was sort of a little hope in the beginning when we started the project that the research into this world of positive psychology might give me insights that ultimately might make me happier, was sort of like a little side thing in the back of my mind. And 
interestingly, not immediately, but a couple of years after the film was done, this actually became true. And it became true from something that I already had known before we started the film, but I had only known it in my head and through considering and involving myself in this subject for eight long years, I actually was able to internalize this knowledge. And the, the knowledge is something that Jonathan Hyde, the scientist in the film, who I have, who sometimes checks in on me, he is in the film, had written in his book as the conclusion, uh, which is, which is uh, that you should not run after happiness or try to be happier. But what you can do is to look at your relationships, the close ones and the far off ones. So anybody from a partner to family to acquaintances and see if you can lift the quality of those relationships onto a level where then when you don't expect it, little happinesses can come out from in between. And you can try to do the same with your work and the same with something that's bigger than yourself. Even though I had read that way before I even started the project, it didn't, it had zero influence in my life. It only had an influence once I deeply immersed myself into the project, which ultimately I think is the reason that almost none of self-help books or self-help films have any impact on anybody because the connection between a reader and the book is too surfacey for it to really work. M many, many of the books, most books that I read, and I think I read about a hundred uh, in that world, uh, had good content. It was not the problem of the content. It was the, the problem of the involvement, which is why a therapist will very much likely be more efficient, more effective than reading a book. Not because it might be that the book has a, the exact same content as the therapist. You know, it's like, you know, going to the gym by yourself or doing a one-to-one -one class with a trainer. And so uh, if I asked you today, are you happy? I'm doing pretty well. And obviously I'm not happy all the time, but I do, I did do that. I did look at my work and did see, did check the last couple of years. I mean, as simple as going through my, you know, at that point, digital diary, look at all my meetings, look at all the jobs we had done in the last five years and just elected which, which of these things were very positive experiences, which of these were not, and then made a decision, okay, let's get rid of all the ones that didn't, and let's do more of the ones that uh, uh, that did, which, for example, was a very firm decision on not to make a follow-up on the happy film because it just it wasn't an enjoyable experience. And I would have to admit that the second film would actually likely be more enjoyable because I now know would know much more of what I've been doing and where we went wrong so incredibly in the process of the first film. But it still would be a huge struggle. 
and you know, uh, you're you you shared a studio with Jessica Walsh, a uh, business partner that and uh, I believe that ended in 2019. Um, and you know, even even talking about uh, uh, Matthias, who used to uh, be in your studio with you uh, and pictures together. And there's a kind of, um, you know, for a very well-known designer, you kind of treat these par- business partners as as equals in a, in a visual sense and in, even in the naming of a firm. And Jessica was quite young when, when she started working with you. Um, what do you think? Uh, is this something you think in particular to you or do you think other designers and artists could kind of learn from this? Because sometimes, you know, as a as a journalist, you know, sometimes I interact with lots of different architects and designers and artists where there is a lot of, you know, the protecting of the image of the single artist as the sole kind of creator. And it's, you know, there's a lot of ego in that. And, and do you think others could kind of learn from this sort of way of thinking? I mean, you know, I don't think that my my own ego is particularly small. So, uh, but I am aware that I've always never, I mean, even including the old Alpon days, done something all by myself. Design in that way really truly is a, a team effort. And I think ultimately, not always, I don't think that I'm flawless in that at all, but ultimately here and there I try to treat other people how I, how I would like to get treated myself. And if somebody makes a serious contribution and that definitely would have been the case with Jessica or with Matthias, they should get the credit for it. And, you know, uh, as I said, I don't think that I've always been like I definitely would not single me out as a model of that, not at all. Uh, but I've tried. I guess from the outside, it, it seems that way that you know that there's uh, you know kudos to you for for doing that. Um, and, and 2018, before uh, the last studio, uh, you know, with Jessica had had kind of ended, you did a show called Beauty at uh, Vienna's Mac Museum, the up uh, the the design museum there. Um, where it's about sort of pushing back in this notion of beauty itself for the beauty for the sake of beauty, not having any value. And so what made you feel passionate about, about that? Well, mostly because we had the experience in the studio that whenever we took form seriously, whenever we worked hard on the form, it seemed to work much better. So we realized that this notion that's very widespread in design, but also in architecture, that it's all about functionality, really leads to pieces to work that doesn't function as well as it could. You know, famous examples would be the 1970s public housing projects that ultimately in many cases didn't function because of their lack of beauty, because they, uh, their coldness seemed to inspire all sorts of bad behavior, including high crime levels, to the point where people didn't really want to live in them and they turned out to not to be functional for human habitation, which is quite ironic considering that the style that they were built under was called functionalism. 
And I'm absolutely 100% positive sure, and there is even very good evidence for that, that if beauty would have played a larger role in the design and execution of these buildings, those crime levels would have stayed lower people would have loved them more and they would still be standing today because one of their non-functional thing is, of course, that they were so short-lived. Many of them had to be dynamited 20 years after they were, they, they were built. And, and this very, very same is true for all areas of communication design. You know, websites that have been considered with to be beautiful, not just formally, but also in their functioning, like how well, how beautiful is that transition from this part of the site to that part of the site? If you press this button, how beautiful does the next thing appear? All of these things will actually make you stay much longer on that site, increase the functionality. But because so much of interface design ha is inspired by engineering and the, and so many of yeah of interface designers come from a more technical background the the god in that world is still very much functionality and i'm a hundred percent sure that the teams who figure this out to really bring beauty into that space will be crazy successful. As we already see that, I think that the leading company in that space who really considers form is Apple, and they seem to be doing quite well. And, you know, uh, speaking of sort of fulfillment, you're known for these sort of, uh, I believe they're seven-year cycles, or, or uh, how did that, are you still sticking to that cycle? Uh, and uh, how many cycles have you had and where, where did this idea come from? So I've done three sabbaticals, full year sabbaticals. It's almost seven years of work, one year sabbatical. I think the idea originated with my late brother-in-law who I was very close with. Uh, he actually and I actually traveled to the United States and to New York for the first time uh, right after I graduated from high school. And he was he was a high school professor and he had done a sabbatical. So it was in my mind from there. But I was, of course, not aware that you could do this also outside of academia or a school system. And when I opened the studio, it was just after seven years that I felt we were doing repetitive work. I felt that I needed some sort of restart, even though, meaning on paper, we were very successful, you know, meaning that the studio was established, we had done covers for the Rolling Stones and uh, the Talking Heads and Aerosmith so, and Lou Reed. So we were it from, from that point of view, it worked really well. I wanted to, I had done a, a talk at Cranbrook and they had very sophisticated grad students that did some serious experimentation where I felt a bit jealous about. Uh, Tibor Kalman, my big design idol, had died and I felt... I don't know, that drove home the shortness of life and the importance of using it to its best advantage. And all of these things conspired 
to make this happen. And of course, I was scared shitless in front of the first one. I thought we're going to be forgotten. I thought it's going to be looking unprofessional. And all of those, you know, assumptions after the first year turned out to not be true at all. It, all the clients, not most of the clients came back. We were not forgotten. We had gotten an incredible amount of press for not working because this first one was in the year 2000 that the, in the middle of the first internet boom where it was very unusual to close a studio for a year. So, and ultimately, that first sabbatical proved so successful. And by successful, I mean that so much good work came out of it that we then executed in the year in the years afterwards when the studio was open again that uh there was no question i'm going to do a second and the same thing happened in the second one i mean the second second sabbatical yielded a completely new direction in furniture but it also yielded ultimately the happy film meaning the start and the idea all happened in that second sabbatical so and now looking back on it i would say that the majority of my favorite projects that the studio had done meaning the ones that I really feel, oh, this was worthwhile, which the happy film would be part of. It was difficult to do, but I think it, looking back on it, I think it was a worthwhile project. Uh, so the majority of those worthwhile projects had their origin in a sabbatical. So I'm keeping on doing them, even though, you know, right now, the work, you know, in the past, four years I haven't touched any commercial work and concentrated on really almost exclusively or no exclusively on work that's connected to long-term thinking which really is my new subject uh, that I'm still gonna go on sabbatical the next one is gonna come up uh, in fall 24 even though the difference between what I'm doing right now and a sabbatical isn't probably as big as it used to be. Uh, and you, you kind of take on these projects for these sabbaticals, right? These sort of like creative things that are outside of your practice, like you fit furniture for the last one. Have you thought about what the next sabbatical will even look like? I've thought about locations and uh, what is basically the the, the desire is always to do something newish. So uh, it looks like that my partner Carolina is going to come along on the sabbatical. That's new. I've never done that before. And uh, so to do it as a couple. And we are, we are not sure yet, but we are thinking maybe three locations in Latin America. Uh, that would be a possibility. But then there's also something completely different where we would take three locations around the world that are completely different from each other. Like we both like Bangkok, we both like Tel Aviv. So who knows? Uh, as far as the projects itself is concerned, I'm not sure yet. It could even be that it's new in a way that 
I continue the current project. I've never done that either before because so far it was also always very, very. Oh, it has to be the exact opposite. So who knows? It's um, uh, it's. I think my only real desire is that the sabbaticals don't repeat themselves. So let's say. It would be fantastic to go to Mexico City because I already know it, but I've already spent part of the last sabbatical in Mexico City. So that's basically out. That's for sure we're not going to do that. It would be also, it's a bit too easy. I think that part of the sabbatical is also that it should be somewhat challenging. Before we return to Stefan Sagmeister, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Curve Collection by Emmanuel Galina solves a problem for anyone designing a truly modern home. Many icons of the mid-20th century were created one at a time and sometimes lack a sense of cohesion when put together in a room with a strong architectural character. The Curve Collection, consisting of a dining table, bed, and chair, whisper good design instead of shouting. The table has a stunning wooden cross piece that can be upholstered in leather, and the bed and chairs with optional footrest can be completely changed with its fabric choices such as pinstripes, a nubby wool, elegant solids, and more sartorial choices. For more information about the Curve Collection and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. Before we return to Stefan Sackmeister, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. For more than 25 years, Fort Street Studio has been creating enduring carpet designs in heirloom qualities that are hand-woven and hand-knotted in beautiful fiber combinations that are luxurious yet natural and renewable. As pioneers of the painterly, non-repeating aesthetic in modern rug design, originating from watercolor art, the creative team at Fort Street Studio continues to honor the artists and artisans of the past while innovating for the future. One of the studio's hallmarks are special commissions of its non-repeating and asymmetrical carpet designs. Fort Street Studios' creative directors take their cues from the worlds of fashion, jewelry, and contemporary art for inspiration. But most designs can be customized to fit the demands of a special interior. The brand has special access to the best dye masters in the artisanal rug industry and can easily match or coordinate colors with the fabrics, paints, and finishes in a room. Harmonious palettes of color can even contain unexpected tones that create a sparkle or shadow effect. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit fortstreetstudio.com. Sagmeister's wildly inventive style seems perfectly tailored for books, and his latest, Now is Better, is no exception. His favorite partner would be Fiden, the arts, design, and style publisher that just celebrated 100 years in the business. So Stefan and I decided to invite Deb Aronson, the group publisher, to join our conversation and discuss this rare milestone in the culture of design and the enduring power of print. 
Deb, thank you for joining us on this little chat. Um, and congrats to to you and the Fiden team on the 100th anniversary of, of the publishing company. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the history of Fiden and sort of like uh, a brief 100 year, uh, 100 years and 100 seconds uh, <laughs> overview of, of this um, incredible company? Absolutely. Um, well, the company was founded actually in Vienna in 1923. And like a lot of publishing houses during that same time period, um, they moved their offices from Vienna to London with the sort of rise of the fascist government. And so Fiden is really technically a UK-based publishing house. We've had our sort of main office there since we moved there. Um, and then over the course of our history, opened the office in New York and have developed a full editorial design sales and PR team out of out of New York. And the company is privately owned um, and has been so since the beginning. And, and if I were to say, you know, there, there are lots of art and design publishers out there, I would say there's like maybe, you know, five of them that are on top, right? And you guys are one of them. And, and, and what would you say is today in 2023, kind of like, part of the key personality trait of Fiden that makes it kind of what it is, and, and successful? Well, I think we're very internationally focused, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, because the company was was based in London, we've always needed to have full global distribution of our titles in order to have a financially viable organization. Unlike some other companies, which were American-based from the beginning, and they really saw North America as a big enough territory to establish their business and have their business. And I think that that um, really informs a lot of the different parts of our program. It informs what kinds of books we publish. It informs our um, design um, aesthetic and um, how we think about what our books should look like, um, what we think our who we think our market is. So I think I think the international aspect of it defines a a, a lot of the sort of reasons why Fiden is the way that it is. And, and Deb, you know, Fiden is now celebrating this with a new book. Um, and tell me about this new book, this sort of 100 years of creativity and uh, how the idea got started and, and what is it? So um, we all of a sudden realized at some point that we were coming up on our 100th year anniversary. And we were like, oh my God, we should make a book. Um, and you know, we wanted to do something that um, was somehow representative of the spirit of Fiden without being a kind of technical history or something like that. We actually, there is a book which talks extensively called Emma Gray's, which talks extensively about Fiden's history. We didn't want to do that. Um, and we wanted something that would not only highlight the hundred years, but really highlight the most important people in our bookmaking process, which is the creatives and authors and chefs and and architects and you know designers and artists who 
create the content that makes our books possible. And I was actually walking back from a dinner with a colleague when I was in London for our sales conference. And we just sort of said, all right, well, maybe like, what if we just did a book that was 100 years of creativity? You have one entry for each of the years. You randomly assign one of our um, authors um, a number and ask them to create something that would live on that page along with their name, their how they characterize their occupation, um, where they are, because like I said before, the international component is so important for us. So to emphasize not only who the contributors are, but where they're working from was really important to us. Um, and we were very open about it. We sort of said, you can do something related to the number you're assigned or not. You can do something related to the anniversary or not. Um, the only thing really that we asked was that most people try to do something in a vertical format because the book is vertical. Um, and then, you know, it was just a matter of reaching out to, we came up with a list, reaching out to people, and then just waiting to see what they created. And we were you know, surprised and not surprised. We know we work with tremendously talented, you know, inventive people. So we got back, you know, things that we would have never expected to get. And they were really wonderful and really different from one another. And drop some names of all, obviously Stefan is in it. I'll, I'll, I'm going to get to asking him what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> but um, who are some of the names? I mean, out of 100, do you think that you can rattle off? Dieter Rams, Annie Leibowitz. Rihanna, um, Stephen Shore, Grace Coddington. Um, yeah, it's a real range of across all of our, across all, Enrique Alvera. Um, yeah, a real range across a, 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 a wide range of disciplines. Then me, me, Rihanna, and, and Annie. That's just yes. like. <laughs> <laughs> that says it all. What else do you need? <laughs> so, Stefan, how are you going to outdo Rihanna? That's a really good <laughs> question. Thankfully, Deb did not share the other people's <laughs> entries into this. <laughs> Otherwise, I think I would still sit here stuck with, uh, with, uh, in the biggest author uh, block. Uh, uh, so, uh, no, I have no idea. Like, uh, I have no idea about the other 99 people. Uh, sure. That almost sounds like a Jay-Z quote, no? But the other 99 <laughs> people did uh, for this project. Uh, and uh, I did, well, I don't know, should we discuss what I did or should, we, should this be a surprise? Yeah, I have no idea. A, a one out of 100 is okay to give away. Okay, so basically <laughs> I did a tiny little research, which I think in my case meant I looked up Biden's Wikipedia page. <laughs> Which, the go-to source. Exactly. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, uh, discovered there, which I did not know, that it was indeed founded in Vienna. And because obviously I'm, uh, I have to do, uh, I'm working right now with a lot of data and a lot of things that uh, that became better. I ultimately looked at the markets that Biden was in in the past hundred years. And looked at how 
how uh, book publishing increased in those markets or decreased. I had I I kind of assumed that it would be increasing, but I just uh, like how many titles would be published in those markets in those years. So 100 years ago, 75 years ago, 50, 25, and now. And then we uh, looked at those numbers and cut Vienna sausages into exactly those kind of lengths and photograph them together with Bela Borsodi, who is a fantastic photographer and uh, that I've been uh, working with for quite a while. Um, Stefan, is there a book uh, in the in the catalog that you think um, really stands out for the design? Well, I have one right in front of me, which is the Ellsworth Kelly book, which is, ah. you know, from a design perspective, I think quite a conservative, a very matter-of-fact kind of book, which is appropriate to the artist. It's the, like, and I think, you know, like many of the Feiden books, it's not everything needs to be flashy. Not everything has to come in a, a blown-up pillow. Uh, but uh, that book needed to, and the Kelly comes in a very uh, in a red slipcase that's as conservative as it could possibly be. I think it's uh, it's uh, covered in fabric, uh, and it's just right. Uh, maybe yeah, just and in many ways the opposite of the one that you just described, but also good. Just right, I think, is a nice way to uh, to, to to conclude this part of the interview. But um, Deb, is there anything else that we haven't touched upon from the, a Fiden perspective, just in case I forget? Um, I don't, I don't uh, yeah, think, I think so. And the book is coming out, so, so sell us a couple of copies of these bu of the book. Um, <laughs> this, the, the 100 Years of Creativity comes out when? It, I, I believe it will come out in September, and actually the book is not for sale. Right. It is being created exclusively for um, people who work at Fiden, for our contributors, um, sort of VIPs involved in the organization. Um, we've really podcasters. just sort of... Podcasters. Podcasters. We can probably fit one or two <laughs> in, named Dan. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we really sort of made it, we really made it for ourselves in a way. Oh, that's, that is, I, that, that as anyone who knows anything about publishing, there couldn't be more uh, wonderfully self-indulgent, it sounds like. So exactly. kudos to you uh, for doing that in a volume business. <laughs> Stefan's latest phase, which includes the Fiden book Now is Better, is radical in many ways. But key to all of it is how downright optimistic it is. I wanted to ask the designer why he chose this topic and how his work cycles fit into his modern life. And, you know, moving into this new sort of now is better phase of your career that has this uh, this new book. Um, you had a show called Beautiful Numbers at the Franz Meyer Museum in Mexico. Um, and it's all about sort of taking the long view on hum on everything, but also on especially on humanity and progress. Uh, what sparked this particular idea in this now is better phase? Well, I was... Uh lucky to be invited as an artist in residence at the American Academy in Rome. And one of the best features there is its food program, uh, which is absolutely fantastic and delicious, was put together by Alice Waters and has the 
fantastic side effect that the food at the American Academy is basically better than it is anywhere else in Rome which means that all of the people who are there, all of the artists, all of the designers, the writers, the filmmakers, the archaeologists, have lunch and dinner there. Plus, anybody that you find interesting in Rome, you can invite to have lunch and dinner there, and they are more than happy to come because it's quite well known in Rome how good the food is. And the environment is gorgeous. It's, uh, if the weather permits, it's in the courtyard. And so twice a day, you have a quasi-salon there with very interesting people. You always sit next to somebody else. And one evening, I was uh, seated next to a quite well-to-do lawyer who was the husband of one of the invited artists. And he told me that what we are seeing right now in Poland, in Hungary, and in Brazil really means the end of modern democracy. And after dinner, I looked it up. When did modern democracy start? What's the story with it? How did we develop uh, historically? And it turned out that 200 years ago, there was a single democratic country, the United States. 100 years ago, there were 16 or 17 after World War I. And now we have 86 or 88, depending on how you count, uh, democratic countries. So he couldn't have been more wrong. We are actually living and this is not an opinion, this is factual. We are like our decade, you know, when it, it just went back a little bit, but it always progress, always goes forwards and backwards a little bit. But you can state that we are living ultimately in the golden age of democracy. Never in the history of humanity did more than 50% of all people on earth live in a democratic system. So, and that insight, or the insights that this highly educated, smart person could have been so wrong about a pretty significant fact of his life was super interesting to me. And I looked into other things, and I had the time at the academy, and I found that basically everything, with very few exceptions, if you look at it from the short term, looks awful because things that go badly tend to go badly very quickly, like scandals and catastrophes. And things that go well tend to improve very slowly and don't lend themselves for a very fast media cycle. And so it just became apparent to me that there are really two opposing views to look at the world. Short term, everything looks like shit. Long term, everything looks fantastic. And considering the short term is very much taken care of by almost all media, uh, from Twitter to newspapers to uh, to uh, uh, cable TV news, they take care of that. I felt it would be interesting to look at the long term and try to communicate that. And of course, the first question, if you look at something long term is, or if you look at the medium, how do I communicate the long term is, oh, what would be a good long term medium? 
So immediately out the window went everything digital because it's terrible long term. Like, you know, if clients ask me for files that we did 20 years ago, it's basically impossible to open them because they've been stored on mediums where the hard that hard drive is long obsolete. You you know, it's it is somehow possible, but it's extremely difficult. So I looked for medium for media that are more long term, and what came to my mind pretty quickly was old paintings. And we actually had some in the in the attic of the house that I grew up in, stuff that my great great granddad wasn't able to sell in his crappy antique store. And those were the first ones that we transformed, basically cut up and inserted contemporary pieces into those old paintings that look like abstract compositions those contemporary pieces, but are ultimately data visualizations. So they're very much design, even though they hang on the wall and might be mistaken for art, but I see them very much as pieces of design, as data visualizations, and people like them. So we started to make exhibitions with them. You mentioned the one in Mexico that's now traveling to many other museums in Mexico. We just closed an exhibition in New York that we are now sending and actually just before we talked I was designing the poster for the exhibition in Tokyo that's then going to go to Seoul and from there possibly to China so there is it seems to work and I feel that message is to me to my heart just as important as the beauty message it's something that many people surrounding me, my friends, my acquaintances are quite unaware of. Like, I think most people or many people are aware of, well, when it comes to longevity, we are doing better now than we did 200 years ago. In fact, we are doing two and a half times better now. Like, you know, we live two and a half times as long, considering most people are rather alive than death. That's progress. But that is true for many other other aspects that are close to our hearts. That's true for war. We live, despite what's going on in the Ukraine right now and in Russia, despite that, we live in some of the most peaceful times in history. And this is, again, these things are not opinions of mine. Like there is very good data about these things from signed off by the United Nations, signed off by uh, by the World Bank. So this is uh, what we can go in many different directions. This would be true for food. You know, there is uh, extreme, extreme poverty has been, is now the lowest it's been in human history. Uh, this is true for health. We've been, we are the healthiest generation. Uh, many, many, it, it goes in many, many other directions. And uh, I would say the only area that we, are, we have a problem that we really didn't have before would be the environment, you know, even though the uh, CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere started 200 years ago with the Industrial Revolution, it wasn't a problem 
until now. And so, of course, there are problems now that we did not have before. I'm also very, very, and I think that that's part of the reason why I find this subject so worthwhile. I'm convinced that we have a better chance of solving these incredibly difficult problems from a platform of knowledge that we have achieved already quite a lot about serious problems of the world in the past than from this platform of doom and gloom. I mean, I have, I have acquaintances who literally wouldn't have children for the declared reason because they think that the world is so terrible you cannot, it's immoral to put kids into this place. And I mean, I myself, knowing our history and having looked at the world from a long-term perspective now for the past years, really, am convinced that this is the wrong way to think about the world, that it actually, that's the likelihood that kids who are born now will live in an incredible, interesting and fantastic environment is very large. I'm actually jealous that I just did a longevity test the, for all rational reasons. I'm going to live until 89, meaning I have another 28 years on this earth, which I'm looking very much forward to. But I think that in 50 years from now, it's going to be even much more interesting. And with all of your studies for now is better, is there anything, is there anything you've discovered where now isn't better? Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I absolutely. I mean, the, the, for sure the environment and that would be including, you know, things like, you know, the, the dying off of species. Uh, uh, at the same time, and I think I, you know, pointed out in the book, it's not that the entire environment is fucked, you know, like if we look at just, you know, when I arrived in New York City, the Hudson was completely, totally polluted. And the idea that you would actually eat a fish that comes out of that cloacky-like thing would be, was ludicrous. And I think we're not quite there yet. I think there's still a little bit of warning. I think that the New York health authorities say you can eat the fish of, from the Hudson, but don't do it if you're pregnant and don't do it if you're like under six years old or so. So there is some caveat that's there, but it's it very much, I'm convinced that in a couple of years we'll all eat Hudson fish again. And the same would be true for my hometown. I mean, this is just my own experience. The lake, the Lake of Constance that Bregan's is uh, uh, is adjoining is much cleaner now than it used to be 20 years ago when I, or 30 or 40 years ago when I grew up there. So there's definitely, there are things that are moving, very much moving in the right direction, but there but at the same time, there is gigantic problems that we have to face and solve. And, 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 you know, my last question on this theme is I'm wondering if there's any aspect of your life that is better now than it was before the pandemic. 
on a personal note, like, is it a, uh, maybe a hobby or a routine you started or something that is better now than it, than it's ever been for you? I think I'm a very lucky person in general. And so the pandemic actually brought me and my partner together because pre-pandemic, we were kind of in a looser, uh, long-distance relationship. And she moved to New York just before the pandemic. And the pandemic really made a proper tight, real relationship out of there. So I'm in that way, I'm quite thankful for that situation. And it and similarly, it of course allowed the pandemic allowed me to really concentrate on the subject. You know, before I I mean, I traveled heavily. I did sometimes up to 50 uh, talks in a year, many of them international, which of course was also quite time consuming and uh, being stuck in the studio here definitely moved that subject forward much more efficiently than if I would have stayed with my with my regular life. So I can say that this was mostly a positive experience for me. And I can see from a definitely from a scientific level, I meaning so many of my acquaintances who are in that world think that this really unprecedented international cooperation on a single subject that was important for the entire world moved many areas of the sciences forward incredible. And I think looking back on it, we will look at this post-pandemic time as being incredibly fruitful and being and huge steps having been made. Thank you to Stefan Sagmeister, Deb Aronson, and to everyone at Fiden for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time, 